Okay, so we're in the nine days now, which is a period of a deeper, deeper kind of mourning than we were previously. And we've been focusing on not running away from the pain. Because life is multifaceted, and some moments provide us with pleasure and with sometimes happy, sometimes jubilation. Other moments provide us with sadness, sometimes fear, and sometimes worry. And that's all good. An emotion is not a negative emotion because it's not happiness. An emotion is negative or positive based on the fact uh, of its relevance to the moment. And if, if in the moment the experience is one of pain, so then that's not a bad emotion, it's a good emotion. I'll give you an example. On Friday we went up to my upstairs neighbor who's just lost his brother. And we went to Menachem over, my wife and myself went to be Menachem, him and he was sitting with his sister. We were the only people there. And his brother was a very, very talented person. He has a rov in Los Angeles for 62 years. Um, a very, very interesting background, managed to escape Russia in the middle of the war through a series of events. Very, seems like an extremely, extremely powerful person. And in the midst of the discussion, so his brother passed away, he's 91, this man is 80, and his sister is 70. There was 10 years between each of them. And he was sitting there with his sister, and he, when his parents immigrated to America, they were pretty much immigrants of nothing, so they had to wake up at 5 o'clock in the morning, and they would come back late at night to get their grocery shop business just so they could have enough food to put on the table. And he landed up taking care of his sister. And as they were discussing their older brother, they were also discussing their own relationship. And I just screamed out myself, but the tears just stopped flowing through my eyes. Because it was just so poignant, the, the, the recollections of this now 70-year-old woman with an 8-year-old brother reminiscing about when she was, she was a little toddler and how I took care of her and how when he went away for summer camp and she and he came back, she was so excited that she used to dress in Shabbos clothes wow. and the way to, and it was just beautiful. Now, it was, but it was painful because it was something that tugged at my heart. But it was a beautiful kind of pain. So there's, there's a certain amount of beauty as well. Not always, but certainly sometimes, or tragedy or melancholy. And those are, those are, those are deep, deep emotions. So if we think about the loss of the, of the connection that we have to the Buddha Olam, in our present situation, and we just we actually we actually meditate on it. So there's an interesting paragraph in in the Tanya, or chapter in the, in, in the Tanya. The Tanya in chapter Chof Vav goes through this idea of sadness, and he puts it in a context because generally, being depressed is not going to help you as a person who's spiritually, upwardly mobile, a sappy. But there are times when it could be very important. Bram. I would like to inform you of this amazing principle. When you have two people wrestling, they're on the floor wrestling with one another. If one of them is le- wrestling with lethargy and a heaviness, he'll easily 
be overcome. Vayipo, and you will fall. Gam imu gibor even though he's much stronger, even, even though he's much more skillful, but if he's not invested in the moment, so then you'll be overcome. The power against him will overcome him, even though he has internally way more strength, but if he's not accessing the internal strength because he's too lethargic, so then he'll lose the battle. This is also true of our own internal struggle with ourselves. We're always involved in some kind of internal wrestling match. Before we even get onto the discussion whether we have the power to overcome the negative parts of ourselves in that wrestling match, the basic question is when I get to the ring, how do I show up? Do I show up lethargic and lackluster? Or do I show up bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, ready to go? Let's say I'm having a, a racing match. One of the most, I suppose, most widespread is the struggle to get out of bed in the morning. It's a struggle. I wrestle with my lethargy and with my laziness itself. So if I don't have a strong presence in that struggle, and I don't go in with an enthusiastic mindset, I'll just fall straight back to sleep. If I'm wrestling with a unnecessary temptation, my sixth helping of chocolate cake, (laughs) and there's a part of me that just says, eat the cake. (laughs) The cake tastes good, eat the cake. And... I really could think to myself, you know, I've had enough cake, I don't need the sugar, it's not healthy for me, it's really not helping me, and I'm developing a really impressive new part of my body around the waistline, and it's not, it's not good, and I don't even look good, and it's, it's horrible, and, you know, I'm getting that dull paunch, and I could really outwit, but that's only if I'm present and I'm showing up with my energetic self. If I'm not, so then, if I'm kind of, you know, whatever, just give me the cake, if I'm lethargic and lackluster. So, those, that part of us, which is lethargic and heavy, comes from something that the Balatanya calls timtumalev, which is a numbness of experience. If our presence in the world is numbed, and I've often experienced this with people. I mean, I've experienced it with myself, but also I feel that very often people who are smoking a lot of weed for an extended period of time, one gets a sense that there's there's an inbred lethargy, which is very difficult to shake. It's almost as if, yeah, whatever, like whatever, whatever. So even though they may not have the same um, physical harm to their body or whatever it is that alcohol does, but something that I've noticed anecdotally is that person that are habituated weed smokers generally have this apathy and you know one could argue that the reason why why they are I suppose each person would be different but some of the people it's just perhaps to take away the pain of existence so it's it's, it's actually that's why it works so well as a as a pain medication I don't mean in the medicinal sense, I mean in the 
in the addiction sense, when I'm when I'm not ready to face my pain, so I need to anesthetize it. Or when I smoke, since the impact of smoking is to essentially take me out of the moment. I don't feel I don't feel like the moment is speaking to me anymore. It's not charged. It's not fresh. It's not alive. It's not like dull. It's like diluted. So therefore it doesn't it doesn't cause me as much pain. But unfortunately what we lose out on is we lose out on the 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 direct awareness of what things are, what consequences are. When when I'm engaged and I recognize that if if I don't do this, so then it's going to impact me. And, you know, if I don't pursue that kind word I could have said to my friend, that's going to impact my relationship. If I don't restrain myself from the extra cake, it's going to impact my bodily functions. If I don't go to sleep on time, it's going to wreck my next day. If I'm in that world, then I can fight and I can reckon and I can be. But if I'm kind of just like skirting over the surface of experience, so then the battle never begins. So the Balatanya is saying something very powerful over here that we're not even talking about the details of the struggle, but who's showing up in the ring to wrestle. And what he's recommending is that when I'm engaged, energized, not lethargic and heavy, then the wrestling match can begin and then have a chance of, of success. But if the person showing up is mildly depressed, so then it's a very compromised position that I find myself in because I'm in the wrestling match with no energy to fight. Well, then the chances are I'm going to get pinned down very quickly. So I think that's a fascinating insight. Let's see where it goes. In order for a person to engage in spiritual development, you need to have the enthusiasm. And he says, now a fascinating point. What opens up that energy flow? And this is going to be very important for us. The power to open up the energy flow is happiness. When a person is engaged and expansive and happy, and enjoy, so he's energized. And depression, sadness is the opposite thing. So over here he's kind of challenging our presentation that we've said until now, praising the power of sadness, saying that, but you can't really do anything when you're sad, because your powers, your energetic self becomes very restricted in order to open it up. You need to have the joy. You need to have the excitement. You need to have the vitality of Geschmackesimche. So, what happens? I, and that has to come, he says it very strongly. He says, Psychasale, that opens up my power of experience. When I'm happy, I'm able to see people around me. I'm able to connect to the situation. I want to share. I want to reach out. When I'm sad, I want to become reclusive. I want to retract. I want to withdraw. So it opens me up. We call Nidlu Daiga. And it takes away any bit of anxiety or sadness. And then I can be really present. But when I've got stuff on my head, I can't be here. I'm worried about this. I'm anxious about that. I'm sad about this. I'm not there. I need to be free of all that stuff, in order to be engaged. 
I mean, the way I experience it is I know that if I've got, I think I've got some kind of many things wrong with me. <laughs> no, <laughs> some of them, but you're just scratching the surface. One of the things I suffer from, not intensely, but mildly, is medical anxiety. I think it's quite common that, you know, if something goes wrong, I kind of imagine the worst scenario, and it becomes a very distracting thought for me. So let's say if I've got, you know, I don't know, I've got, my ear feels blocked. Oh, why is my ear blocked? What's going on over there? And then, like, even when I'm trying to focus, there'll be, like, this little kind of uh, side thought saying, what about the ear? And then you're taking care of the ear. What do you do with the ear? What's the ear? What's the ear? What's the ear? The ear's kind of, kind of worrying. Like, what happens to the ear? I think it's going to ring. Well, what is that? What is that? It's going on in the ear. Oh, gosh, what's going on here? So when I've got that going on in my head, I can't, and someone comes and talks to me, like I'm thinking, I'm hearing the voice, but this thing with the ears, you're getting me, I don't know what's going on here. So I can't be fully present. So I have to clear my mind of all kind of anxiety and worries and stuff, and then I can be fully present. How do you do that? Ooh, well, one second, insert the coin, and then I'll spit out the answer. Spit the coin in my ear right this, and, ah, what do you mean? What do you mean? Yeah. Well, let, let, let's see what he says. Let's, 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 that's what we're trying to, yeah. yeah. Remember, this isn't the share with answers, this is the share with questions. So, so now the Balatanya asks the question. So right now we're having a very bad rap on sadness. <coughs> sadness has a bad rap because, see, see, many sadness has a bad rap because the, the point that the Balatanya makes isn't that, oh, it's a negative emotion, we always have to be happy. He explains why. Until now, we thought we had to be happy because you got to be happy, happy. Have a great day. Have a nice day. Have a nicer day. Have the nicest day in the world and tomorrow. So, why? What's behind it? The reason why we have to be happy is because it facilitates a healthy development of spiritual striving and it gives you a power to struggle and then you have the chance of overcoming. Whereas when you're not happy, you become soft prey. Imagine in the world of, of nature, and you've got a really chilled out. Imagine if Impala, these are like the Impala called the McDonald's of the bush because on the back of their, of their body, they've got this, it looks like a double, it looks like two arches. And they, they're actually the favorite food of, of lions and other predators. So the, the Impala, this very widespread, um, antelope that, that covers the African savannas. And so, you know, you've got an Impala and they say Impala's, got together one day, a group of impalas, and they say, you know, one, one impala says to other impala, life stinks, you know, like our whole life, we're like busy running away from lions, and we've always like, we've got our eyes on the side of our head, so we've got, we can see behind us as much as we can inside of us, like, like I don't know, I just like, I'm like, I'm like sick of this like, animal of prey, massive. <laughs> like, I don't know, so, so the other impala says to him, yeah, but you know, brother, like, what can we do? This is just the way we're made. So, so the original parlor says, well, let's take a, let's take a lead from our, our human, our human counterparts. Well, well, what do they do when they upset with the way they're made? So, they smoke weed. <laughs> so, so like these empires get together and like they make like, you know, they, they find there's some wild weed growing there and they're like, you know, empires aren't really that, they're not, they, they're not, they're a bit freaked out by fire as most animals are. So, so they kind of, but they, they negotiate it and they get a piece of glass and they light this, you know, the nice little kind of garden of greens over there and they catch them fire and then they're busy like just sniffing and sniffing and they were sniffing, sniffing until like one impala says, hey man, this is like chilled. And then the impala says, yeah. And then another impala that kind of says, hey brother, I think I can see a lion behind me. Oh no, man, that's freaky. Oh wow. 
Those guys, those lions, those are those are those are evil. They're gonna eat us up. Yeah. What do you think we should do? We should run. Now, like I'm chilled. Meanwhile, the lions are getting closer, you know, like, and these, like, impalas are deliberating, and so, like, my impalas are, oh, okay, let's go, and, like, and they start to, like, lay, like, a daisy, like, kind of, like, you know, to a bit of a, before he knows it, he's <laughs> breakfast. Bye-bye, impala. So, that's an important reason why we need to be energized by the energy of Simcha, because without the energy of Simcha, we're just sitting ducks to the negative forces. I think there's something which is documented by a few social scientists, scientists, it's called moral fatigue. If a person's, anyway, at the end of the day, people generally make bad choices, because they're just tired. And when you're tired, you don't have the strength to struggle. So if you give a person a moral challenge that when he starts off and he's fresh and he's just got to work, chances are he can resist it. Then giving a really stressful day where the supply chain that he's he's responsible for just kind of collapses and the truck breaks down and the people are phoning him and complaining him and then then his two pairs like coming down hard on him and, and that he's at the end of the day. And like he's emotionally spent. And then moral challenge. Someone comes to him and says, listen, just need you to sign off on this thing. It's, it's not a big deal, but you'll get a massive tax break. You just have to report something that didn't really happen. It's okay. Because you've got no more energy. So got any energy to dissipate. So having a lack of energy is, is, is a morally dangerous thing to do. So you need to be the same the whole time. Oh, Bobe says the Balatanya, Umashi Kosav, Bechol Eitzev, Ye Moisar. But there's a pasuk and it says, with all kinds of sadnesses, it will be an advantage. It's an advantage to be sad. So you see that sadness is good. And I've just kind of rinsed sadness out. But sadness is Geschmack. It says, Bechol Eitzev, Ye Moisar. So the Balatanya is going to explain the context of sadness. Let's see if that's going to be relevant for us. Pirush, She Eze Yisroi Nomalem Izeh. That there should be an advantage to sadness. So he says, when it says, in all sadness there will be an advantage, it actually means not what we would have initially thought, that sadness is an advantage, but sadness will produce an advantage. So it's not advantageous to be sad, but it's advantage, advantageous to be sad because of what it will do for you in the future. And he goes on to explain. The incredible joy you'll be able to experience when you do introspection within and you start to see your spiritual distance from Hashem and you start to do a little bit of a reflection on what you could have achieved, what you could have done, and how you are doing. How many things in your life, theoretically, you can adjust to make yourself healthier, more spiritually connected? How many times you've done things which are just perhaps by rote, they don't they don't have the same charge to them as perhaps they could or should? How many relationships have you not invested in fully? How many times have you passed the sunset and not appreciated? How many times have you drank a glass of water and not been appreciative or thanked for 
Hashem for the for the beauty. This and you look and you actually start to see that in many ways my life is all messed up. And when I look at my messed up life, so then I think, whoa, 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 whoa! I'm a spiritual train smash. And when I look at my train smash nest nest nud train Yiddish train smash kindness, so then. I recognize that, whoa, 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 how can I construct a spiritually whole individual if I've got so many leaks in my spiritual ship that the water's coming in at such a rapid rate? This is hectic, hectic, hectic. And I allow myself to experience my predicament. I don't, I don't shy away from looking deep inside the inner recesses of myself in order to see the fact that there's stuff going on which isn't too hunky-dory. It's not so gushmak and good. Or as they say in the classics, it's not so ay ay ay. And what happens? You have to choose specific times for this. Where they really kind of quite a bitterness inside a contrite heart, and a broken heart. The idea when in Jewish texts when they discuss a broken heart, they don't mean what we associate as a broken heart, which is generally the end of a romantic engagement, but rather your heart is your point of connection with experience. And when you feel that you just at a loss, it's hard to connect with the moment because there's so much inside of you that's obstructing <coughs> you. That's called the Leibniz, but I just don't see a way forward. It's just like, oh, messed up. Whoa, where am I? But actually acknowledging to myself that place, that through this you can actually break down what's called the Ruach break down the numbness that you normally experience in the world. There's something extremely um, rehabilitating about going in there and just experiencing the brutal, vulnerable truth about myself, even though it's all messed up. And as a, as a girl, when you, when you actually go there and you just actually get real, properly real, and you actually open, what you do is you remove the iron barrier between you and the spiritual reality. So it actually becomes a very redemptive experience. And explains that when you experience this state of loneliness, so then the following emotion becomes a real deep joy. And he relates this to the verse that says that the advantage of the the beauty of the light that comes from the darkness, that the light that comes from darkness has a different luster to it because it's contrast. So when you actually... You think the joy comes out of like because he found out what was wrong? I'm not sure. We'd have to experience it. I'm just, I'm just reading words at this point in time. I haven't, I haven't actually practiced this, so we'd have to practice and see. But it sounds, to me, it sounds as if 
when you touch the reality of yourself, whatever that reality is, even though it's a, a broken, shattered, fragmented being, touching reality is, is, is ultimately as painful as it starts out, becomes quite liberating. Uh, I'll give you maybe something which is, and I don't know if it's exactly, but it's maybe a um, related experience. I recently did a internal dialogue. I was wondering to myself, I, I recently became conscious of the fact that I've got a part of me that wants to protect my image. Like I want to look good in the eyes of other people. What was like image, image part. I want to look good. And it's, it's very emotionally exhausting trying to look good to people, especially when you messed up like me. <laughs> it's harder. Like, uh, you know how hard it is to pretend that. So I wondered to myself, why, where was that part coming from? I was able to go inside of my internal psyche and do a kind of meditation. And it was fascinating. I went deep down and I found a part of me that was a 10-year-old boy. And when I was 10 years old, I changed schools. And I experienced my 10-year-old self in this new school where he felt completely disorientated. He had no idea where he was or what he was doing, and he had no friends, and he was very lonely. And I recognized that at that point in time, I formed this need for approval so as not to feel that jarring loneliness. And after I came out of that experience, so I felt so, in a way, a little bit healed. But all I did was I saw a broken part of myself. But by seeing the broken part of myself, it was quite healing. So I don't know if that's going to, you know, but I think that's the idea. That when we look into, I mean, I was looking far back. But I think most of the stuff that we do in the present has its origins deep in the past. Um, so... So that's a bit of an, uh, an analogy to this idea of that going in and seeing the brokenness of self isn't necessarily doesn't necessarily produce more sadness. It can actually be very healing. You can feel good. Because there's something about actually recognizing those parts of myself which are there anyway. So when I don't see them it's not like they've gone away. It's just that they're lurking in the surface and they're probably lurking in the surface not helping me. So let's go down into them. And let's examine what's going on. So the, by the time it says, even in our spiritual practice, there's going to be stuff that's obstructing us. And the stuff that obstructs us, if we think about ourselves as spiritual beings, that we really seek cohesion with the Boya Olam. So if, if we're not doing that, there must be something that's sabotaging our relationship. So what is that stuff that's sabotaging it? Wouldn't, wouldn't, you know, last, session we spoke about Avram Avinu that he was a spiritual intuitive and he just through a deep spiritual journey discovered and navigated himself successfully through the world obeying all the spiritual laws or feeling the energies and, and responding to them so why don't we do that well because we're not connected to that internal self or what's obstructing us so it could be the lot, lot of the stuff that's obstructing us is I don't know you know we, stuff that happened to us when we were small that we haven't properly explained and articulated and dealt with and developed and healed and therefore it still holds us back. 
Like to think of the fact that I need approval right now and I need everyone in this year and please if you don't mind doing this afterwards is this like clapping and saying, Oh, you're so amazing. So I need that because as a small boy I wasn't able to form a good friendship group when I was like ten years old and therefore I felt the sense of well it's, it's really what happens is the way I manifest in my present life, it feels really unsafe unless I get approval. I need the approval, I need the approval. But it's not because I need the approval from you, because I've I've matured beyond that. I I don't need your approval now. I'm okay. Baruch Hashem. Why family? That I've I've matured. But there's that part of me that kind of didn't get the update, so it just remains frozen. So it doesn't manifest as oh, you need all these people to say that, otherwise you'd be really unsafe. It just says as like an unspoken feeling. I just need the approval. But when I actually unpack it and I go down and unpack it, so then I say no, it's, it's okay. I'm safe without the approval as well. And it doesn't matter. I'm okay. I'm safe without the approval. And when I think it's safe without approval, so then it completes my dynamic with you in this moment. Because it doesn't matter if you really thought the share was great or not for me. It matters in terms of my function as 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 a, a sharer with you, trying to learn together with you. So if I'm ineffective, then I should be more effective. But it doesn't have the same charge to it. Well, you know, if no one liked it, so then I really have to think about how to make it more appropriate. But not, oh, no one likes it, I'm finished. And, but, when I'm not aware of the 10 year old part that really wants approval, so then it feels if you don't like it, so then my life is over because I'm all alone now and I'm rejected and I'm, so, I'm still that little boy wandering around that school and not having anyone to connect to. But how do you disconnect? Like, hmm? How do you just, it's like you know why that's how you feel. It doesn't change how you feel. So when I go into that place and I see that, that little child and I actually speak to him, and I say to him, what's going on? And he tells me what's going on. And I say, I hear you. Let me tell you what's changed and something. I realize how disorientated you were then. And I realize how you didn't have a friendship group then. I realize how lonely they must have felt for you. And how scary they must have been for you. But right now, things have changed. Since then, my dear little Perry, we've grown up. And I've learned so much more. And now I realize that ultimately, when I really think about myself, I'm okay even when I don't get approval from people. And even if I wouldn't have that close in a friendship group, which is always amazing, but it doesn't make or break who I am. And we don't, we don't need that. And that little 10 year old looks up at me and says, really? And I say, really? I say, come with me into my life. And I bring him into my life. And I show him my world. And then he goes, okay. I get it. Thank you. It's a process. We can, we can practice this if you'd like. You know? It's a, it's a very powerful technique. So that's uh, that, 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 that's the Balatanya. So let's just kind of bring us back into what we are speaking about. We're speaking about the power of sadness. And I said the power of sadness is, is, is potent because it's connective. So let's think about this. The Balatanya says more than that. He says, actually, it's a prerequisite for a deep experience of joy. So how deep you can go in the sadness maybe will be how more you can experience the joy. Because if you're not experiencing the sadness, so then there's always this kind of cut-offness that we, we're in. So right now we're in a very sad state on one hand of where the world's at. And that's this, this morning that we're going through in the nine days of having this immense spiritual distance between us and Hashem. So as we experience that distance and we actually confront it, and we look at it. And I suppose the comparable in a dialogue that we do with, with the spiritual distance is, it's quite interesting now. I just, I just had, on this, I just had a fascinating insight. 
See, what I had was a wound, right? A wound from when I was 10 years old. That was like manifesting my, in my day. You know, why do we mourn the destruction of the temple? That's not what we're mourning, right? We've spoken that out because that's not... That, that's like, who cares? I mean, there's a building, it broke. Say, move on. Move on. <laughs> we're very, we're very industrious people. We don't get, like, if you get hung up in the past, you'll never do anything. But we seem to go back to it. What's, what's the vote? So perhaps this is the vote. We have a collective memory as a people. And just like me as a person, when I want to heal myself, I go back to the origin of the trauma in order to heal. And the origin of the trauma becomes the emblem, the symbol of what needs to be healed. But the problem isn't the trauma then because it's long gone. The problem is impact is making my life right now. So the reason why we mourn the Beis HaMikdash is because in our collective memory, that's where the wound began. That was a traumatic event. So we go try to go back into that traumatic event in order to heal and dialogue with that traumatic event. And then actually the whole mourning of Tisha makes sense. It's not just like, you know, we're mourning as spiritual distance and we're randomly associating with the base of English. But that's, that's the source of our, as a, as, as a, a how old am I? Well, I'm 3,000 years old because I'm part of this body called Klan Israel. And we experience this trauma then. So I want to go back to my childhood and go back to that trauma, traumatic message of my childhood in order I can revisit it, feel the wound, and then hopefully to find healing there. And that completely trans, Forms, transforms my understanding of how this time works. And I think that can be very, very, let's try it. That could be very powerful.